0: You're listening to the audio from Tuesday Night Class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, let's begin our last session of Kings. Uh, let's begin with prayer. Lord, we thank you for your grace, and we thank you for your word. And uh, we do pray that we would learn from your word. Thank you for the gift of First and Second Kings, and for all the lessons uh, that you have taught us throughout First and Second Kings, but also just the the story of the story that you are weaving in throughout Scripture, and uh, where we can find ourselves in this story. So we do pray as we look at these last few chapters that you would continue to speak into our hearts. We commit tonight to you in Jesus' name, Amen. Okay, so uh, tonight, in honor of uh, Rush, I called it Farewell to Kings, which is one of their albums, sorry, it's it's a real theme tonight, it's rough. Uh, You know, last week things were going so well, it's too bad we couldn't end with Hezekiah. Hezekiah, as Mike so aptly put it, a diamond in the rough, Uh, such a great king. Hezekiah did what few kings could do. He stood up against Assyria and survived. And so credit goes to Hezekiah to figuring out, for for starters, how to bring water into the city. That's that's one of the best ways to defeat a siege, if you can bring water into a city. Uh, For the resistance demonstrated by the people against the oppressors. But in the end, obviously, the most credit goes to God for defeating Assyria. And so during Hezekiah's reign, we looked last week, judgment was averted. There were opportunities for the people of God to get things right, to walk in the ways of the Lord. Hezekiah proved himself to be a, a very able king, uh, a good king. Uh, he's the only king uh, that we read who, who took down the high places. And so he was a very, very good king. Um, and yet, even under such a good king, there's still a shadow of of looming judgment. We hear a prophetic word from Isaiah in 2 Kings chapter 19. Hear the word of the Lord, behold the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And so as we close out our time in 1st and 2nd Kings, we're left with questions. When will this judgment happen? Not if, but when. And secondly, how is, it, how is it that Hezekiah's son turned out to be such a dud? Uh, that's the second question I find. And I, you know, when we're going to look at it, this fellow named Manessa, it's a reminder that you can do everything right as a parent and there's no guarantee that your kid's going to turn out well. I think Manessa is a ter- certainly a good example of that. And so we see this in the life and the reign of Manasseh. Or, as I put, just when you thought a king could not get much worse. (laughs) We come across Manasseh. And we read about him in chapter 21. And let's, if you have your Bibles, let's read about this fellow named Manasseh. Manasseh was 12 years old and began to reign. And he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah his father had destroyed, and he erected altars to Baal, and he made an asherah, as Ahab king of Israel had done, and worshipped all the hosts of heaven, and served them. And he built altars in the house of the lord of which the lord had said in jerusalem will i put my name and he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the lord and he burned his son as an offering and he used fortune telling and omens and dealt with the mediums and necromancers he did much evil in the sight of the lord provoking him to anger And the carved image of Asherah that he had made, he set in the house of which the Lord said to David and to Solomon, his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not cause the feet of Israel to wander any more out of the land that I gave to their fathers, if only they be careful to do accordingly to all that I have commanded them, and according to the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But... They did not listen. And Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord had destroyed before the people of Israel. That's pretty harsh. And the Lord said by by his servants, the prophets, because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations and have done things more evil than all the Amorites did who were before him, and has made Judah also to sin with his idols, Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hear it will tingle. And I'll stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab. And I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. And I will forsake the remnants of my heritage and give them into the hand of their enemies. And they shall become prey and a spoil to all their enemies, because they have done what is evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt, even to this day. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood, till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other, besides the sin that he had made Judah to sin, so that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Well, now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and all that he did and the sin that he committed are they not written in the book of Chronicles, in the King of Judah of the kings of Judah? And Manasseh slept with his fathers and was buried in the garden of his house in the garden of Uzzah and Ammon his son reigned in his place. Wow! Just when you thought it wasn't going to get any worse, what a warning! Um, you become what you worship, right? You know, that's that's what we've been talking about. When you worship that which is dead, you die. Your your people die. Your whole nation dies. Right? David, because the king did this, do all the people follow exactly what he did? I mean, why why wasn't there why weren't there people that stayed true to God? I mean, because he went sideways, everybody followed. him. Yeah, yeah. Well, a couple things. So Ray asked the question. You know. How, why is it just because the king was terrible did everybody kind of fall in line? One is you have to understand, I mean, we live in a world where, in, in the modern world, where I have my freedom, you have your freedom. The government says this, pff, I don't have to listen to them. So we live in a very different age. In the age of first and second kings, you have, if how the king went, the people would usually go. And so that idea of someone standing up against the government or protesting against the government is not... um, you're not going to see the same sort of thing in 1st and 2nd Kings as you see today. Though I would say even in today, as society goes, the church seems to fall in place pretty quick. Uh, Look how much the church has changed in the last 10 years as society has changed. And I think half the time the church changes... It's theology on different issues, including, especially in the area of anthropology and gender and sex. Not because it's thought things through theologically, but simply because it's going along with the, with the flow. Um, and so even the church today doesn't necessarily stand up against um, poisonous ideas. But certainly in, in this time period, that would almost be unheard of. How the king went, the people tended to go. Now there is a remnant because you have prophets, right, speaking out. Uh, And you do come across, as we look at different um, stories tonight, you're going to have, you know, some assassins kill a king and the people going, hey, you can't kill our king and they kill the assassins. I mean, you have those sorts of things, but um, man, as the leader goes, so do the people. So Manasseh's reign goes from 697 to 642. Now... Remember, 587, 586 is when exile is going to happen. So we're, going to, we're, we're getting close. And there's probably a co-regency with Hezekiah. So they both reigned. How that took place and why Manasseh didn't learn from Hezekiah is beyond me. Um, Judah takes a pro-Israel stance, which, is, which makes sense because Assyria is, is the big kid on the block. But look at his spiritual leadership. He's a a disaster. What does he do? Well, one, he worships idols like the nations that Israel had driven out of the land. He worships. He's, He's leading the nation to worship like the Canaanites that were in the land before Joshua entered the land. That's how bad this guy is, right? And so the covenant people show themselves to be as unworthy as the people they displaced. He allows the high places to be rebuilt and to flourish. So we have a legacy of Jeroboam. He imitates good old King Ahab and his worship of Baal and Asherah. He bows down to, I think in some of your translations it might say starry hosts. Right? And so these would, he, he's bowing down to the sun, the moon, and probably Venus. Um, and so there's this is, um, and it's pretty widespread, but this, this view that the heavens can guide the future, right? Or, or the, the heavens can be worshipped, and they also, within the heavens, you can discern things that will guide you to make decisions in life. And so it's usually the worship of the sun, the moon, and Venus. And this, this um, worship of the starry hosts and even to, to, to create space and altars to worship the stars or to worship the sky, was uh, a real legacy, from my understanding, of Assyria. That's what the Assyria really introduced. So it's an imitation of, their, of, their, um, of, of, of the empire that's dominating them. He builds altars to these gods. And he builds altars where? And it's very clear. In the temple of the Lord where the Lord had placed his name. They're putting Baal and Asherah and all these things in the very place where God is to be worshipped. So you got polytheism. He imitates Ahaz's practice of offering child sacrifice. He offers his firstborn um, as a burnt offering. But he also consults mediums and spiritists in direct violation of the teaching of Moses. He practices necromancy. So the speaking of the dead. Who does that remind you of? Rush. <laughs> the answer is always rush. Uh, <laughs> it reminds you of who oh, Saul? Saul, a little bit of Saul. He practices. Are you ready? Haruspicy. What is that? Does anybody know? Right? Yes. It's a study of the future by looking at the entrails of animals. And within that, there's also the practice of, it's hard to say, hepatoscopy. Say that with me. Hepatoscopy. <laughs> and what is that? Yes, it's the study of the liver to determine the future. And so you would you would take an animal's liver sometimes others but usually an animal's liver and you would study the liver and by studying the liver well, you could actually discern the future you can or make decisions or how things are going to go and there's actually in history they found, you know, if you're a, a medical doctor and you're Planning to be a doctor. They give you these artificial things that you work on in order. So when the real thing happens, you know how to do it, right? Well, they actually discovered a wooden or a, I think it was made out of wood um, Model of a liver that students were to work on in order to learn how to read the liver in order to to predict the future. And there's a picture of one of them uh, that I got from the internet, yeah, in your notes. There you go. So what, um, who are um, Manasseh's role models here? Not his dad, obviously. His role models are the Canaanites, Jeroboam, Ahab. Ahaz, and Saul. And uh, Manasseh violates the three key areas of our life with the Lord. He fails to follow David's example and hold up the Davidic covenant. He defiles the sanctuary of the house of the Lord. And he rejects Moses' covenant, which means he will forfeit the promised land, which is built in on that covenant. And so God responds to these abominations. First off, God compares the Judah, Judah to the Amorites in the sense that they're drawn into idolatry. He lays out judgment. He says, man... Well, God doesn't say man, but I'm saying it. He says, this judgment is going to be so bad, so bad that the ears of everyone who hear this judgment is going to tingle. The ears are going to tingle. He says, you know, the same plumb line, the same measuring stick that we used against the northern kingdom, Israel is going to be used against Judah. And it's not looking good. And so the summary of Manasseh's life is really bleak. Uh, we, read, we read also, it's almost like he did all these horrible things, and by the way, he just killed a lot of innocent people. Shed a lot of innocent blood. And he is also known as being the king who is responsible for killing this high-profile prophet, who. Isaiah. And how did Isaiah, how was he killed? Does anybody know? We get a hint of it in, in Hebrews 11. He's sawn into half. Yeah. And so, yeah, the, the tradition is that uh, Manasseh was the one who was behind killing Isaiah, who was sawn into, into two. So he's not a good guy. He yeah, sawn into half, yeah. So after Manasseh comes Amon, and Amon just gets a couple lines. He's just like his dear old dad. He does what is evil in the sight of the Lord, but he's assassinated by his officials. People aren't happy, and so they kill the guys who assassinated him. So after Amon comes, Another king, Josiah. Now at this point you're thinking, man, this nation is done. Stick the fork in, they are toast. I mean, it's, it's, it's just getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And now you get Josiah. But wonder of wonders, you get a good king. In fact, Marty's not here, but I would argue that Josiah was a better king than Hezekiah. In some ways, in in fact, Chronicles would say that he he was a better king. You would think you're going to get a worse king, but we're presented with an awesome king whose awesomeness may at least rival that of Hezekiah. And this is King Josiah. And his reign extends from 640 to 609 BC. Even as a young man, his... um, his reforms are central to bringing about a change in the land. He actually, there's like a bit of a revival that takes place. And he's able to steer a policy that is somewhat independent. And part of the what makes Josiah such a good leader is that he listens to people. He lists, he's surrounded by wise prophets who guide him. So who are some of the prophets? There's prophets like Huldah, which we'll come across. Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. And his reign is 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 a brief respite, or it's the respite before Judah falls into oblivion. So let's look at Josiah a little bit. he's He's an interesting guy. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned thirty one years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was uh, His mother's name was Jeddah. And the daughter of, uh, okay, a bunch of names. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in the way of David his father, and he did not turn aside to the right or to the left, which is a characteristic of a person who is walking with integrity. And then something happens. Well, let me just give you a little bit of background. One of the reasons why, under King Josiah, things are okay is that internationally Internationally, um, the king of Assyria has died and when he dies there's a bit of a leadership vacuum and while they're sorting out the leadership issue um, Babylon starts to flex its muscles against Assyria and the Babylonians are starting to put pressure on Assyria so basically my point is this is Assyria is kind of busy at this point. And whenever, so the story of Israel during this time period and all the nations of this time period is that when the empire is on full alert, these smaller nations are like, yes, yes, we'll do what you say. Here, take all of our gold. When the empires are kind of shaky, well, then they operate by the old, old wise saying, when the cat's away, the mice will play. Uh, they'll do whatever they want to do, and often they'll they'll become a lot more independent when these bigger empires are are preoccupied. So at this point, Assyria is kind of preoccupied with Babylon, and so there's a bit of a flourishing and a renaissance that takes place in Judah at this time under King Josiah. And what happens here? And so Assyria is actually on its last legs because in 612 BC, Nineveh falls. And by 609, the Assyrian Empire is done, which I always, this is just an aside, but I always keep this in mind when I read about empires coming and going, is that empires that are so powerful that you think they're just going to go on forever, they always will come to an end, which we have to think of when we think about the empires of our own age. (coughs) When I was in university, I studied political philosophy and international relations, and it was the 80s, and I graduated in 1989, and everything I studied was Cold War, the whole paradigm was Cold War, because the Soviet Union obviously is going to go on forever. And so I graduated, and all of my studies, everything I learned about politics, all went out the window within a year because the Soviet Union fell. And nobody saw that coming. Nobody saw the, the, the fall of the Soviet Union. And so empires come and go, and even the great empire to the south of us will come to an end. And it may be coming sooner than later, or it may last for a long time. We'll see. Um, so, what happens then, once this one empire declines, the Babylonians, the Babylonians haven't quite ascended to, uh, to um, its highest point yet. And so, when the big boys weren't traveling through Judah, Josiah was able to kind of carry things on peacefully, right? So, we read that by when, Ju- when Josiah was 18, 18th year, in his 18th year, he decides to repair the temple. <laughs> the temple? This temple's taken so long to repair. I mean, we were raising money for the temple last week. And, and the money, oh, you know, it, or two weeks ago. That was two weeks ago, yeah. So finally, they get around to repairing the temple. And while this is happening, the high priest, a guy named Hilkiah, reports that, Hey, we found something. We found something. It's the book of the law. And he brings it to the king, and he reads it to him and they 're like, "Whoa, what is this strange writing? you know what is this which is quite remarkable. so what is the book of the law what 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 do you think it was? I think it was deuteronomy it's most likely it was deuteronomy, maybe Deuteronomy and something else, but Certainly Deuteronomy. So, I mean, what that tells you is how long has it been? How long has it been where the teaching of Moses had not been taught in the land? And they almost look at it as like, whoa, this is really interesting stuff. And, you know, this is Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy, they teach about... You know, this this truth of God, what God has revealed, make sure you pass it on to your children. Well, they they haven't had this. Well, we've seen the fruit of that with guys like Manasseh. And so, how will Josiah respond to this? Well, he responds with his whole heart. He has a confidence to know that, hey, this is God's will, this is what God has revealed, and this is service to God's people. And so he tears his garment when he hears the law being read. And, and, the, and the word of God cuts to the heart. And a revival breaks out. So, just a quick question for you. What is your experience in reading God's word? Yes. Um, this, this experience of, of reading the word is, is transformative in the same way Hezekiah taught, sought out advice uh, from Isaiah Josiah's men seek out uh, a prophetess a woman named Huldah and, um, and Huldah delivers a two-pronged message. She says, one, she interprets God's word for the people because of their sins, because of idolatry. There will be grave consequences as laid out in Deuteronomy 28. So these are the consequences. Secondly, she's quite positive about Josiah and his future. And I love Josiah because Josiah could have said, well, you know what, I'm doing all these changes. But we're still going to go, we're still under judgment. I mean, what's the point? But he says, no. I'm still going to bring about change. I'm still going to reform, bring about reform. Whether or not we go into exile, whether or not God's judgment comes down on the land, it's still the right thing to honor Yahweh. And so he does. And he brings Judah back in alignment with God. He leads the whole nation to true conversion to the Lord. And he begins a covenant renewal ceremony. Prophets are present, so are the people, the elders, the priests. Everyone listens to the word of God. And then he, t- he carries out, uh, he's got 10, 10 tasks in front of him, right? What are the tasks? He wants so one, he orders the priests to remove any signs of worship of other gods, he fires the pagan priests, <laughs> he's, he burns the Asherah pole his rotten son had placed in the temple. He smashes the living quarters of the male shrine prostitutes. He desecrates the high places from the north to the south. He smashes shrines. He defiles places where child sacrifices were made to Moloch. He removes ornamental horses dedicated to the sun because that's the Assyrian hangover. He removes altars on roofs. Um. He desecrates and then smashes the high places that Solomon built for his wives. Wow, it's from days of yore. And then, then he heads north. He's not done. He goes up to Bethel into the, uh, the old land of the, the northern kingdom. And he removes the bones. It's kind of interesting. What, what does he do? Um, he goes up to the place of the Jeroboam cult, right? The golden calves, remember him? Jeroboam and the golden calves. He removes the bones from the priestly graves and burns them on the altar to defile it, thus fulfilling a prophecy we read about. Remember way back at the beginning of this class? Long time ago when we looked at 1 Kings 13 where that unnamed prophet, he had one job, he was supposed to go up and he prophesies against the altar, oh altar, oh altar, and then he's supposed to go back home and then he gets waylaid, and this other false prophet said, hey, you know what, no, God actually told you to come and eat. And he goes, all right, I'm going to eat. He goes, ha, you're supposed to go home. And then a lion kills him. Remember that story? Go back over You can look over it again. <laughs> but basically, at that point in that passage, there's a prophecy. And I said, boy, this prophecy doesn't get fulfilled for 300 years, like you are saying, Ken until the time of Josiah. But we get that prophecy way back in 1 Kings chapter 13. And so here's a fulfillment of that prophecy. The other thing that he does, and which is staggering, not the act, but the fact that Passover had not been celebrated for years and years and years. And so Josiah behaves like He's kind of like a Moses who's getting Israel ready for the promised land, even though he's, he knows he's not going to be able to see it. He gets rid of the mediums and the spiritists. And, 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 and I don't know about you, but I read Josiah, I'm like, oh, why wouldn't God just, I mean, this is good stuff. This is a good king. Why wouldn't God just, yeah, and just hold off judgment? I think part of the reason that I think God knew how rotten to the core things were because no sooner is Josiah I mean he's killed we're not quite sure why what he was doing remember he's telling you that things are pretty calm right now well I guess Egypt when things are calm again other um, empires are probably thinking hey this is our chance to, to expand our empire so you got Egypt probably thinking Assyria is weak and Babylon's not quite so powerful so let's go and take them on. The problem is, is you always have these battles between Babylon and Egypt and Egypt and Assyria and all that. Well, in order to fight each other, where do they have to go through? They always have to go through Israel. So Israel's often just the road, you know, they're getting run over by these people. And so Israel has a choice. Well, which which horse am I going to back? Am I going to back the Egyptians? Are I going to back Assyria or the Babylonians? And so it looks like Josiah had the idea of... Um, uh, fighting against Egypt, which ends up getting him killed. We read about that in chapter 23. But right after Josiah is killed, so here's Josiah. He reigns for a while. How long does he reign for? Oh, 31 years. So that's not a short time, 31 years. And after Josiah is after Josiah's killed, right after he's killed, what happens? Yeah, and it just slides right back into idolatry. The narrator tells us, like right after this, and it, I love the way it's written, because it is written, you, can get, you get the sense that things are, are hastening towards an end. Because we get a number of short stories which paint the picture that Judah is going to fall again into apostasy, and judgment will come um, if you read chapter 23, we learn that the new bully on the block is Babylon. He, it is a new empire in the land. It's going to replace Egypt as Judah's chief nemesis. And you just get a sense that doom is coming upon the land. And right after Josiah dies, after he dies, um, he's ta- his, 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 the kingship is taken over. Um, by a guy named Jehoaz. And the Davidic dynasty carries on, but like Manasseh was to Hezekiah, Jehoaz is nothing like his dad, Josiah. He does tons of evil. The only good thing is that he doesn't live long to cause too much damage. He dies after three months. Or no, he only lasts three months. Uh, Pharaoh Nico actually interferes and places his own choice on the throne. Jehoaz is sent into exile and replaced by Eliakim. Who's more pro-Egypt. And he's given the name Jehoiakim. And he's willing to support the Egyptians. Which is a, not always a good thing. He rules from 609 to 598. We're getting close. He's not a good king. Um in fact, Jeremiah has a lot of things to say about this king. <laughs> uh, well, let's look at it. Turn to Jeremiah, because Jeremiah has some thoughts about this king. So Jeremiah 22, verse 13. Yeah, this is a message to the sons of Josiah, right? Verse 13, woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his upper rooms by injustice, who makes his neighbors serve him for nothing and does not give him his wages, who says, I will build myself a great house with spacious upper rooms, who cuts out windows for it, paneling with cedar and painting with vermilion. Do you think you are a king because you compete in cedar? Did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? Then it was well with him. He judged the cause of the poor and the needy. Then it was well. Is not this to know me, declares the Lord? But you have eyes and heart only for your dishonest gain, for the shedding of innocent blood, and for the practicing of oppression and violence. Right, so Jeremiah has some pretty strong things to say. Jehoiakim decides he doesn't like these prophets, and... Sets out to kill, kill them. He even burns a scroll of their words. We read about this in Jeremiah chapter 36. But this king, at least he's smart. He knows which way the wind is blowing. And before long, he rejects Egypt and he makes an alliance with Babylon in 605. Around this time, Babylon comes to Judah and takes some captives back to their land. Right? Right? So Babylon comes in, they take some people back to the land. Who did they take? What's that? Yeah,, yeah I thought that this is when Daniel may have gone with, uh, um, gone, gone to, um, to Babylon. Jehoiakim plays, then pays tribute to the new master, this king whose name is Nebuchadnezzar, right? Later on, three years later, Jehoiakim says, hey, maybe the Egyptians are stronger. So he changes his, you know, currency, you know, puts Egypt on it. Um, Doesn't work out. Babylon says, you know, you don't worship, you don't throw your weight behind the Egyptians. Babylon invades the land. Judah manages to survive until Jehoiakim's death. And in fact, what Jehoiakim, his final act was, was to tick off Babylon and leave a mess for his son Jehoiakim who's only 18 years old and he's like well what am I supposed to do and he only lasts three months and Jerusalem's in a lot of trouble what happens here Jehoiakim is thrown into exile Nebuchadnezzar raids the temple treasure more people are taken into Babylon including a prophet named Ezekiel A fellow named Zedekiah is placed on the throne. And you get the sense that Judah is disintegrating. It is one small shove away from being done. Zedekiah, like his forefathers, is an absolute mess of a leader. And he reigns from 597 to 587, the year of exile. And uh, he doesn't listen to the prophets. And what does he decide to do? he decides to rebel against Babylon, which doesn't go well. Take a look at chapter 25. This is the end. And in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, it's pretty specific, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it and they built siege works works all around it. So the city was besieged till the 11th year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then a breach was made in the city and all the men of war fled by night by way of the gate between the two walls by the king's garden though the Chaldeans were about around the city, the Babylonians. And they went in the direction of the Arabah, but the army, the Babylonian army, pursued the king, overtook him in the plains of Jericho, and all of his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king and brought him up uh, to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and they passed sentence on him. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and put out the eyes of Zedekiah, and bound him in chains, and took him to Babylon. So the last thing he sees is the killing of his sons. In the fifth month of the seventh day of the month, there was the 19, uh, that was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, then, the captain of the bodyguard, the servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem, and he burned the house of the Lord. He burned the house of the Lord and the king's house." you know how long it took to build that house? Back. And all the houses of Jerusalem, every great house he burned down. And all the army of the Babylonians who were there with the captain of the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. And the rest of the people who were left in the city, and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon, together with the rest of the multitude. Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile. But the captain of the guard left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers, and plowmen. Wow. Keep going. And the pillars of bronze that were in the house of the Lord and the stands in the bronze sea that were in the house of the Lord, the Babylonians broke into pieces. And carried the bronze to babylon they took away the pots and the shovels and the snuffers snuffers and the dishes for incense and all the vessels of bronze used in the temple service the fire pans also and the bowls what was of gold the captain of the guard took away as gold and what was of silver as silver as for the two pillars the one sea the the stands that solomon that had made for the house of the lord the bronze of all those vessels was beyond weight The height of the one pillar was 18 cubits. Anyhow, it's all taken away. In the very last line, verse 21, and the king of Babylon struck them down and put them to death at Ribah in the land of Hamath. So Judah was taken into exile out of the land. Nebuchadnezzar or Nebuchadnezzar burns everything everything that David and Solomon built collapses. Everything about Jerusalem, Judah, the people of God is destroyed. The city, the temple, the monarchy, everything was stripped from the land. Now to Nebuchadnezzar, this is simply one more victory. But in the story of the Bible, this is tragic. This is unheard of. This is, this is how could this happen? It's an inexplicable tragedy, except it is explicable. But it is a tragedy. And if you want to feel what a tragedy this is, turn to Lamentations, chapter 1. This is written on the heels of of the destruction of Jerusalem. Lamentations chapter 1. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become. She who was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All of her lovers, all the gods that she worshipped, all the, all the lovers that she had committed adultery with, none of them are there to comfort her. Isn't that the picture of idolatry? The promise is so much, but it's not there when, when things happen. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. All her her gates are desolate. Her priests groan, her virgins have been afflicted, and she herself suffers bitterly. Her foes have become the head. Her enemies prosper because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away, captives before the foe. From the daughter of Zion, all her majesty has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture. They fled without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and wanderings all the precious things that were hers from days of old. When the people fell into the hand of the foe, and there's none to help her, her foes gloated over her. They mocked her at her downfall. Jerusalem sinned grievously, therefore she became filthy. All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Wow. I'll tell you, one of the things that stood out, as I've been reading first and second Kings this time around, is just the tragedy of the exile. And just the heaviness, and these, and people just could not get their heads around this. This is, we are the people of God. God, this is a promised land. This is all the promises God has given to us. And you read, you read Lamentations, but when you read it, read it aloud, and you could just feel the pain in Jeremiah's heart. And the heels of all this, Nebuchadnezzar, he points a fellow named. Gedaliah to administer to what remained of Jerusalem seems like a decent fellow, but he's killed He's assassinated and at this stage the promise of God seems to be finished No city no temple no land people are now as strangers in a strange land the Davidic dynasty seems to be over Except you know Solomon had had prayed back in 1 Kings chapter 8 that if Israel was ever taken into exile, Solomon prayed that God would in some way, some way bring them home. Will they return home? And the, the book of Kings ends with a very strange story. I don't know if you, if you guys read it this week. There's a strange story right at the very end. At the very end, we come across Jehoiakim, the king who had just ruled for a few months way back in 598. Turns out he was able to survive, and he survived for 37 years. So Nebuchadnezzar's dead at this point. He outlives Nebuchadnezzar. This new king, a guy named Evil, <laughs> Evil Merodach, actually treats Jehoiakim well. He gives him a place of honor at the table. And he treats him well for a prisoner. And it's interesting, at the very end of 2 Kings, you get this small sliver of hope. That though Israel had taken an ominous turn, better days may be ahead. The other thing that comes out of this is that maybe, maybe David's line is not done yet. And maybe there are failings in the Davidic line, but maybe, 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 maybe God is not done yet. And, you know, when you read this, and then you read the prophets. You read the prophets. Okay, well, let's read one. We read... um, Where do I have it? I mean, and and this is... This is a a verse that you've heard a lot this week with high school graduations. It goes, um, hang on, where is it? I'm going to find it. I'm going to find it. Oh, here we go. Yeah. Jeremiah 29, verse 11, which is what you read in all the graduation cards, right? For I, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. You got it? Jeremiah 29, verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for the wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. (laughs) You know, this is the most popular verse in the world right now in the Bible. It's it's more it's written and rewritten more than John three sixteen, yeah. Well, no, it's just I have my theory as to why this is more popular. I think it's more about me rather than John three sixteen. It's for God so love the world that He gave you know. This is more about me. For I know the plans that I have for me. <laughs> and we read this and we think that God has great plans for me, and and He does. But in light of the exile, what is this passage saying? And nobody, no graduate who reads this passage is going, huh, I bet you Jehoiakim really would have appreciated. No, they're just like, oh, this is, you know. And I get that, but we, whenever you read scripture, you can't simply bypass the context and apply it to yourself. You can get there, but you have to go through the necessary steps. In light of the exile, these are incredible words of hope, right? Jeremiah saying, I know the plans. You will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. What words of hope in light of all that's gone on. And then you read Jeremiah, he says, I, I'm going to give you a new heart. A new heart, not a heart of stone, but a heart of flesh. And all of a sudden, you have people who are living in exile, thinking the promise is over, and God's saying, it's not over. It's not over. And then you start reading these prophecies. There will come a day. You start reading about the suffering servant in Isaiah, and you start reading that in light of the exile, and you realize that God, he's not done. He's not done. That there will come a time where the people will return, and I will make things right, and I will heal the land. But it's going to be done through this suffering servant. And who is the suffering servant? And so you start reading the prophets in light of all that we read in First and Second Kings. And I don't know about you, but my heart is like, I get it. I get it now. I get the, 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 the incredible hope that would have been given. And I also think about, you know, when you're reading Lamentations and, and, you, and you read just about the heaviness. And then you read these words in, in Lamentations in the midst of all the despair, and you hear Jeremiah write these, Jeremiah say these words. He says, "But this I call to mind: all hell is broken loose. Right? All the, the we've been driven into exile. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases; His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is Your faithfulness." The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him. They're in exile. To the soul who seeks Him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Oh my. It's powerful. And so, what are some of the lessons that come out of this? Well, I think one of the lessons that comes out of this is the same old lesson that's run all through First and Second Kings. It's not idolatry will kill you. Idolatry is, is hazardous to your health. The idols that we hope in, we think we can find security in the end. When all hell is breaking loose, these idols will have abandoned you. Manasseh spent his whole life trying everything and anything to bring about spiritual meaning and national deliverance. Everything except what we read about in the New Testament is a one thing needful. And that is to submit to the one true God of the universe. And I thought thought about Manasseh. I thought, Manasseh, he's a bit of a microcosm of our world today that looks everywhere except up for their help. Josiah... The second thing is, Josiah serves as an example of how to have no other gods before the one true God. And given all the stuff that's going on, his life is quite remarkable. Josiah obeys the truth that he possesses. He finds the book of the law and he obeys God's revelation. He does whatever is required to live out God's will and his ways, even though he knows that their days are numbered. So what do we do with what we've learned? I just want to give you a couple thoughts. A couple thoughts from the the book of Kings. How now shall we live? One thing I think that comes out of the book of Kings is this. Is that you and I are called to live distinctive lives. That to follow Yahweh in the world is going to make you strange. What is it? Then they'll know the truth and the truth will make you odd. Um, and it will make you odd. If you follow Jesus, you're going to be one odd person. But that's part of being a Christian. We are to live differently from what we see happening all around us. And so we need to be careful of the idolatry that's in, that's in the air. We're called to live as salt and light. Jesus teaches us to let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And I like what um, Christopher Wright says. He says, but if there's no real difference, that is, if Christians are in most practical ways no different from the people and the culture around them, then we become nothing less than part of the problem itself, contributing to division and degeneration of society. So we're called to be salt and light, and that means not to be running after all the gods that everybody else is running after. Secondly, we're to to live prayerful lives. Um, Chris Wright talks about praying for our leaders and against our leaders. And I like that. We pray for our leaders because we're taught to pray for our leaders. And sometimes as Christians, if it's not the political party we like, we pray, we kind of ignore that part. But we pray for our leaders, but we pray against them. In the sense that we pray against any idea that is incompatible to the ways of God. But most importantly, we live cruc- crucicentric lives. We need to remember that Babylon is still the world that we live in. And one of the ways I think, and we talked about this when we talked uh, when I taught Daniel, one and First and Peter, that the model for the Christian life, the metaphor for the Christian life, is that of an exile. You and I are living in exile. And the nation that we live in, the world that we live in, is Babylon. It is Babylon. Uh, In the sense, I heard it once said, we're not in Greece, we're in Babylon. But Christians still think they live in Greece. In Greece, everybody likes to debate ideas. And so as a Christian, it's like, here's my thought about Jesus. What do you think? Thinking that people are going to have a respectful conversation. But we live in a world where we say, I, I believe in Jesus. What do you think? And they're like, shut up. And so we need to really read the prophets. How do you navigate in exile? We need to read Daniel. How do you navigate your life while you're in exile? While you live in a, in a, in a land that is hostile to your beliefs? It's not easy. And you have to make sure that you don't get overwhelmed by Babylon. You stay true to to Jesus. You stay true to God in the midst of a very hostile environment. And so you need to be as harmless as a dove and wise as a serpent. It's not easy. And one of the guys, again, Chris Wright, I was reading his book on idolatry today. (laughs) It's so good. He says this, The world that we live in is a world of post truth fake news contradictions and denials then denials of denials a world of utter confusion of sexual morals and the boasting approval of things even non-christian society once deplored wow (laughs) you get that we live in a world where there's boasting approval of things that even non-christian society once was down on right We live in a fallen, broken, sinful, rebellious, turbulent, endangered, suffering world. A world in which false gods and idols seem so sneeringly triumphant. But it's this world that we're called to follow Jesus. To lift up the cross of Christ and to follow him. And to serve him and to live before him in a world that is inaugurated by the uh, the kingdom of God. We're to live in obedience to him, including being willing to proclaim and teach everything he taught. And so we lift up the cross against the world of evil, folly, and idolatry, recognizing that it is the light of the cross that the idols of this world will be exposed as ridiculous frauds, that they really are. We point out the the truth of Jesus, and as we hold up the reality of Jesus, all the lies that are associated with the idols in this world will be eventually exposed to be dead frauds and so against this world of falsity we lay before the world the one who has declared and demonstrated that he is the truth the life and the way and i think that's one of our challenges that comes out of first and second kings is how to be true to God in a world where everything, everything, where everywhere you look is, is, is wooing you away from following the one who's the author of life. But that's why we need to be students of the word. That's why we need community to remind each other that we're not crazy, that this is, this is where life is found, um, and yeah, and and, 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 to, and to remind ourselves that our lives will only work in so far as they're aligned to the one who is the author of life. And so, that's uh, that's First and Second Kings. <laughs> any uh, any questions, comments? Oh, I see a few of them on here. Yeah, uh, don't watch the news <laughs> like that. Don't watch the news in the morning. Watch Leave It to Beaver. That's not still on, is it? Uh, what else okay just to conclude our time oh yes, yeah. to do the book of Isaiah might be a good idea too yeah I think we need more than 10 weeks though <laughs> why don't we uh, conclude our time uh, with prayer Lord we thank you for your grace Oh, we're so thankful for your grace. We read at the end of Second uh, Kings, and it seems so dark. And yet we read your prophets, that the steadfast love of the Lord never fades, never fails. That your mercies are new every morning. And we know that um, after the exile, that your promise to bring the captives home, and to fulfill your promise that you made to Abraham to make a great nation and through this nation all the nations of the world to be blessed is ultimately fulfilled in the true Israel, your son Jesus Christ. Who, uh, who was faithful where Israel was unfaithful and who died on our behalf, took the punishment that belonged to us unto himself, and died the death that we should have died, but did not stay dead, but was raised to new life. And now all the promises, all the promises, we get a, a huge yes in Jesus Christ. And all the promises that we see in, in, in Jeremiah, that, uh, that you will bring us home, that you will reconcile all the nations to yourself, that you will give us a new heart of flesh, That your spirit will dwell within us all these promises are fulfilled in and through jesus christ and so lord help us to live cross-centered lives help us to align our lives to the one who is the truth the life and the way help us to be aware of the idols that are clinging to our hearts and by the power of the holy spirit may we pry them off our hearts and so that our hearts to be completely dedicated to you may the lessons that we read that we came across in first and second kings stay with us as after we leave tonight and we stay with us for for days and months and years to come and we do pray that we would walk with you in all that we say and do and that you would be glorified in all that we say and do we cling to you lord you are life In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Thanks for participating in this class. If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of C.A. Church.